the thing about grief is that it it changes so many parts of your life. I think a lot of people think that grief is just the act of missing somebody, but it's not. Grief is like your entire life changes and it's not just dealing with the act of missing somebody. It's dealing with suddenly a lack of a future that you had dreamed for yourself with this person. It all of a sudden starts changing your relationships with friendships. It changes your relationship with your work. It changes your relationship with like so many aspects of your life. That was Eliza Earl, and this is the Running On Own podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back or welcome to the Running On Own podcast. I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and here at the Running On Own podcast, we feature long-form style conversations with women in endurance sports and in the outdoors. Although these conversations focus on women's stories in particular, this podcast is for everyone, for everyone to listen to, to hopefully be inspired and empowered by. Today's podcast guest, Eliza Earl, is an adventurous sports photographer, filmmaker, and endurance athlete. Eliza has shot for major brands such as Patagonia, Eddie Bauer, and the North Face. And in this conversation, Eliza opens up about her unlikely path to adventure sports photography and filmmaking, and how her own endurance training and racing has actually been paramount to keeping her fit to do her job of capturing some of the world's best runners, climbers, and athletes. Eliza also opens up about navigating grief and the nonlinear nature of it. In October 2015, Eliza's boyfriend Ethan died in a tragic climbing accident, and Eliza reflects on the impact this event had on her own life, and how this experience shifted her relationship with photography and in the outdoors. I so appreciated Eliza's courage and honesty on sharing about her experience with grief, and I'm really in awe of her perspective on it all. Eliza and I first met at Out Wild's inaugural festival in 2018, where she was leading photography workshops and I was teaching yoga, and I've since then become a huge fangirl of Eliza's work on Instagram, and I'm really honored to have her on the podcast. Please do reach out to Eliza and I on Instagram and let us know what resonated from today's conversation. The week this podcast comes out, the world is in the midst of dealing with the coronavirus. This experience with the coronavirus is impacting so many people in so many different ways, it's even hard for me to speak to. Right now, more than ever, I believe that it's time to reach out, to check in on the ones you love. Send them a text, give them a call, FaceTime them, and let them know they're not alone. I'm really deeply grateful to this podcast community and all those who've reached out to me during this time. If this conversation would resonate with someone you know, please do share it with them and keep loving and living as fully and as safely as you can. Okay, friends, let's do this. Let's dive deep with insightful Eliza Earl. cookies are really good <laughs> feel free they're breakfast cookies i will i will continue to eat them um, so we're like 17 miles or so from where you grew up we are yes we are i was actually back there a week ago 
and it was the most wild because I don't I don't go home back to my hometown of Concord, Massachusetts anymore because um, my parents live up in New Hampshire. Um, they moved like right after I graduated high school, pretty much. So I never go back to my hometown. And yeah, downtown Concord has totally changed. It's wild. <laughs> what did it feel like to be back? Um, it was actually like it was a pretty positive experience. I didn't have a like. Concord, Massachusetts is an interesting place. You know, I'm so happy I grew up there. There were a lot of opportunities there and um, a lot of really formative experiences for me there. But I mean, it was, it was such a bubble. It's such a strange, you know, classic, like suburbia, New England town. Um, and like, especially once I left it after high school, I just was like, I never want to go back there. <laughs> like, it's just, just like so far from like, you know, my family and my siblings, like my siblings and my parents, and we just had nothing in common with the people who lived in Concord. <laughs> we just felt like such outcasts all the time. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. Leaving was like, was was pretty freeing, but going back was really fun. I actually, I still have some friends who live in the area and um, this children's theater that I grew up participating in is in Concord and it's, it's so fun to go back actually and see all the people that still work there and they're like my family you know and I haven't seen them in so many years so that was pretty special oh that must have meant a lot to them yeah. to see you yeah it's really cute it's cool to see them like still doing what they're doing yeah and inspiring youth yeah yeah but you didn't, I mean, you didn't go too far for college. You went to Tufts in Somerville. Yes, I went to Tufts University. Um, definitely did not go too far. And it's funny, actually, because I remember um, my mom worked at the university, like, all throughout my childhood. And I always just associated Tufts with my mom's work. And so, you know, when I was in high school and trying to think of, like, where to go, she was obviously like, you should go to Tufts University. It's such a great school. And I was just like, I don't want to go where you work. <laughs> it's like, that doesn't make any sense that I remember visiting the campus and I was like wow this is beautiful I really like it and at the time I was studying theater and they actually had a really good theater department um and so yeah decided to go there and that seems like so many worlds away now. right yeah which I mean it wasn't I graduated like uh eight years ago eight years no yeah eight years ago now but when you were studying theater were you studying it just because that was what you were interested in, or did you have a passion to pursue that post-collegiately? Um, yeah, I totally had a passion to pursue it after college. I grew up acting since I was 10 years old and was just so into it right to the get-go. I mean, I was so passionate about acting, and mostly this children's theater that I grew up acting with was just became my family in Concord, and they were the greatest people on earth, and we had such a great community of friends there. And, um, and I, I think I was just, I was good at it too. Like it was just something that I just, I remember I just got it. I, you know, reading lines and telling stories as a different person just came like naturally to me and I really enjoyed it. Um, so going to college was important to like continue that. Um, it was interesting though. I remember getting to college and starting the theater program there and it was so different than my experience in Concord with my theater group that it was a bit jarring because I was like, oh, I thought, you know, the 
Concord Youth Theater community that I grew up with. Like that's just what theater is for for everyone else, and it and it wasn't. And I had a really hard time making friends actually within the theater community at Tufts. Like I just didn't really click with that many of them. They're all great people, but we, I just wasn't clicking in the same way that I did um, with other friends. And so I joined the Ultimate Frisbee team instead. <laughs> Had you ever played Ultimate before? No. <laughs> I wasn't even a sports kid. Like I like hated like anything to do with like activity. I felt like as a theater kid, it was like part of our ego to like denounce sports in general, you know, like you couldn't be both. Um, but I started dating, um, my then boyfriend who was on the ultimate Frisbee team. And I remember throwing the Frisbee with him and he was like, you actually have a good throw. You should try out for the team. If you want to like, you know, find more friends that, you know, you think are cool. And Sure enough, I tried out for the team, and they became my family then at Tufts. It was, was the Tufts Ultimate First Beat team. <laughs> That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the little research I did into your family is it seems like, you know, growing up, everyone in your family had a really clear passion. Yes. With your brother with rock climbing, and mm-hmm. your sister is also an amazing endurance athlete. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think was about your family structure that led to each one of the kids being so, it sounds like, driven and focused? Um... I think my parents are both very passionate people. Um, My dad's a professional violinist and my mom um, is really passionate about her research in um, women's health and nutrition. And they were always really into outdoor sports, you know, um, coming up, um, you know, being brought up as a kid. But I was the black sheep of the family. I loved theater and I hated everything to do with the outdoors, which is so funny to think about now because my entire life revolves around the outdoors. But like, I hated it. Um, like every family gathering, we were going for a hike or we were going for a run or we were going skiing. And I just like, you know, my friends would come back from a vacation to the beach. And I was like, why can't we go to the beach? <laughs> And now I'm like, oh my God, I was so fortunate. My parents were bringing me to these beautiful mountains at such an early age. Um, The one thing I always really liked was rock climbing. I always was really good at that. Um, And so that was the one activity with my family that I, that I totally attached myself to. But yeah, I was, I remember just thinking like, I must be adopted because I just like hate, hate this so much. But, but honestly, it it totally set the foundation for coming back to it when I was then like in my early twenties. Yeah. So what brought you back to the outdoors? Um, I was living in Los Angeles after I graduated Tufts pursuing film and acting. And I was having a really hard time with it. Like, obviously, it's a really tough industry to break into. And it's one of those industries that you're not going to make it if you're not so in love with what you're doing. I mean, you have to love acting just so much. And by that point, I had basically spent the better part of the four years at Tufts University slowly realizing that acting was not the end all for me, but I was so already on that path that I didn't really know how to veer out of it. And um, by the time I got to LA and like totally pursued it, that's when it started to hit where I was just like, oh shit, <laughs> like this is not what I'm meant to do with my life. Um, you know, it still brought me like some joy, but almost more of like a hobby. And I think when I was little, I couldn't dissociate like 
how much fun I was having with my friends versus like the actual work I was doing. And I think I was just having a lot of fun with my friends and was like, maybe I could turn this into a career. But if your friends aren't there, it's like not that fun anymore. So when I was in LA, I started looking for outlets to kind of just like give myself some headspace to just like think more clearly about what I wanted and a buddy of mine we actually started going running up in the Hollywood Hills which at that point I mean I was I had you know run for ultimate frisbee but I was not a runner and I did not really enjoy it but we would wake up at 5 a.m like every other morning because that was the only time when you wouldn't hit traffic (laughs) and we'd go up into the Hollywood Hills and have these beautiful sunrise runs and hikes and that was when I was like gosh, this is so fun. And it also felt rebellious because in the LA scene, like also doing anything like super adventurous was just kind of weird. Like no one really did random 5am, like sunrise trail runs in the Hollywood Hills. Like they'd go hiking, but they wouldn't like run up the mountain and then like back down. And, and I just all of a sudden felt slightly like edgier, you know, it was like, it kind of gave me that, like, I'm not like the rest of these, you know, LA weirdos. They were just living in this bubble, like, you know, pursuing such a random career. Um, and so that was kind of like a break for you. I started going to the climbing gym again. Um, at that point, my brother was starting to climb professionally. And so it was just like, it was, it was really cool to see him succeeding in climbing. And it just like kind of brought me back to like my original roots in climbing as well. And that's kind of like where it started. And then after a year in LA, I finally made the big decision to quit. And that was really scary because I was just like, I had no backups. I didn't intern anywhere else. Like while I was at Tufts University, I didn't double major in anything else. I mean, I just did acting and theater and I knew I didn't even want to go into like the business of theater or I didn't even want to go into produce. Like I didn't want to do anything that had to do with the film industry. Um, And so I quit and moved back to Boston. (laughs) Tell me about that decision to quit. Did it happen overnight or was it a slow progression? It probably happened in the space of like a month. Yeah. I think I remember just, um, there was a friend of mine actually from Tufts University who moved out to LA with me and she was an actress and we would meet like every month or so and like talk about the jobs that we were getting. And it was interesting because I think at the time I was getting cast in more like bigger like short film things or little commercials or like these TV segments and she was always like wow like that's incredible like you must be so psyched and like those are such great jobs and and then I'd ask her like what she'd been up to you know what what she'd been up to and I remember one time she was like yeah I just did this like audience work for this studio where literally you just get paid to be an audience member to just like sit in the audience of like a talk show and she was like it was so cool and I loved it and it was amazing and I was like oh my gosh like I'm working like the jobs that you want and I'm not even psyched about them I was like I and that's when it hit me it was like I'm not doing what I should be doing And it was like so, so clear in that moment where I was just like, I need to love this. And I really don't. Like I would get a call that was like, you've been cast, which is so difficult to do to finally be cast in a show or a TV show or like something and like finally get a role. It happens like once in a blue moon. And I would finally get a call that was like, hey, we're offering you this role. And my initial thought was like, I don't really want to do it. (laughs) So that was like, okay, I should be, I'm clearly not doing what I want to do, but 
Yeah, it was around that time, though, that I picked up a camera and was like um, kind of dicking around with video skills because originally it was just to film myself for auditions, to submit myself to auditions. And then uh, and then I just quickly stopped doing that and started filming like my friends on weekend adventures. And I was like, this is so fun. I really like this. And so um, I quit and moved back to Boston with no idea what I was going to do, but kind of just kept kept going, kept playing around with the camera. So when you moved back to Boston, how did you spend your time? Like, what? How did it go from you playing with a camera to now you being a professional photographer uh, who travels the world? Oh gosh, yeah. I um, I was living with my parents up in New Hampshire over the summer with literally no idea what I was going to do. You know, all of my friends had just graduated college and are now starting their careers, and I just ended mine. You know, it was just the scariest thought. Um, but one of my really good buddies from Tufts, Ian McClellan, he was coming up to New Hampshire to work on a a short, like trail running documentary. And he stayed at the house. And I remember, uh, he was just kind of like, yeah, you know, my vision for this would be like, if I had more people, like they could just hold more cameras and I'd get more angles. And it would just like, I would just get more for this, for this particular race that he was filming. I remember just being like, I know, you know, I know nothing about cameras, but I think I know what looks visually compelling just from my time working on sets and, and understanding how to like make composition, you know, with the frame. And, and I was like, if you put all the settings to like (laughs) what you need, I was like, I don't know how to work any of these buttons. (laughs) If you put it to what you need, I'll come out into the field with you and like, I'll hold the camera. And I did. And it just blew my mind because I'd been working in film, but I'd been working in narrative where it's all scripted. It's all stories that aren't true. It's all caricatures of people to all of a sudden I was working on a documentary where we were telling stories of real people doing real things. And I was like, this is so much more fascinating than fiction. Like, like non, like even reading, I love reading nonfiction over than fiction. I think real stories that are just fascinating are fascinating because they're real. <laughs> like it's, Someone didn't have to make this shit up, you know? So all of a sudden I was just like really, really into telling real stories and the visual component of that, you know, with my history and acting. And I'd done a bunch of art even before that. I was like, okay, this could work. And so I remember we kind of struck a deal and he was like, if you want to be my assistant for the next three months and just come on every shoot with me and just kind of work for free, like I'll teach you everything I know. I was just like, great. I have like nothing else to do. So I got like a restaurant job and then part-time and then just like worked for Ian. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We both are friends with Ian and he is just so down to earth, He's so humble, so positive. He just yeah. like bops around. Yeah. Yeah. What an amazing teacher to yeah, have. I was really lucky. He's still my teacher. I mean, I'm going on a shoot with him later today. And like last night he was like helping me set up all the lights and he's like, this is how you use studio lighting. And I was like, great. I have no idea how to use studio lighting. Aww. And it felt like back in the old days where he was just like set every setting everything up and like showing you how everything worked. And I was like, this is great. Yeah. That's he's so the best. cool. Yeah. So what was the first shoot you got that you were hired for on your own without Ian? Oh, I remember it. Um, I, at that point, I remember I was like, okay, I've like, I have some chops. Like, I think I know what I'm doing. And Ian was just kind of like, yeah, just like fake it till you make it, you know, just like start finding little things. And I went on Craigslist and I would search the videographer like job ads. And I found this one, uh, marketing agency that was looking for someone to make, uh, 
like recap videos of the this food truck festival in Boston um, that they were running. And they were like, we just need someone to like run around the whole day and just document the madness and and so that we can put it together into like a minute long video to like share on our YouTube channels. And I was kind of like, I know how to do that. Like enough, you know, I was like, I can film everything and then put like a fun, you know, music overlay over it, which is like <laughs> super easy to do. But, you know, I went into it like totally being like, yeah, I'm a professional. I've been doing this for a while. And it was like jokes on them. Like I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> like absolutely none. Um, but I did it. I remember they paid me like a hundred dollars and I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> and you probably got to eat great food yeah. at the food festival. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I just started doing a bunch of those. I was just like scouring the Craigslist ads for random jobs. Um, but it was also around that time where I was like trying to think more big about what I wanted to do with it. And, um, and I really kept coming back to like adventure sports, just that was so ingrained in me as a kid. And then seeing my brother doing it professionally, I was just like, I really want to tell more of those, like, you know, like the trail running movie that Ian made, I was like, that's kind of what I want to do. I want to be outside, you know, filming athletes and, and telling those types of stories. And so it's around that about a year after sort of like learning the ropes, I applied to his internship um, at Sender Films. They kind of do the real rock film tour out in Boulder, Colorado, and I got it. Yeah. So then I went out there. That's amazing. And then you started focusing more on climbing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What was the first time your brother and you collaborated and what was it like to film him? Climbing. Yeah, the first time we collaborated was actually even before I got the internship at Sender. We were out in um, Chamonix, France together um, on a little family trip. And my brother wanted to try this rock climb um, that was kind of like in, in the valley. And, you know, I'd finally learned all these skills from Ian uh, about like filming. And at this time, too, it's like not photography. Like I had. I was only learning filmmaking um, and I just thought it'd be really fun to make a movie on my brother Mason trying this climb. And it's still to this day, like one of my favorite films that I've ever made. Like I remember I just put so much energy into it because I just cared so much about the outcome and, and like getting all the different angles and the different shots. And it was the first time that like, you know, he rigged a rope for me so I could shoot from above. And, and it was just the whole production of it was just so fun and like doing an interview and conducting an interview with him and like getting that all down and then editing it. I remember just like editing techniques and coloring it, which, you know, I did such a terrible job at because I didn't know how to color, but, um, that was the first time that we collaborated together. And then, um, it was one of the reasons why I got the internship at Sender Films was that I sort of saw them. I sent them a clip of that and they were like, Oh, she knows how to make rock climbing movies. Great. And so that's what helped me get it, get 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 that job. Yeah. yeah. I can see in your face when you describe it like how much you light up from that first experience. It was so fun making films with my brother was just I mean I've done a couple now since then and and it's it's always been like the most fun projects. Yeah. yeah. I mean I feel like with someone you're related to there's just like so much unspoken to Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's also just like really easy to get them to do what you want because, or not, but like, you know, he's my brother. So I'm like, I know I'm not going to hurt his feelings or like, he's not going to say like, wow, she was a really bossy director or something like that. He's like, I'm his sister. So. Are you older? Or no, I'm younger. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What's the birth order? Uh, my brother's the oldest. I'm the middle and my sister's youngest. Awesome. Yeah. 
So when I look on your Instagram, there's so many beautiful photos. And one place that it looks like you've been really drawn to is Yosemite, Mm. which is a place that I think people around the country see and are like, wow, it's pretty magical. Mm. What pulled you there and what was your first time there like? Oh, Yosemite. Yeah. Um, Yosemite is super magical. Um, For me, it's magical for a lot of different reasons. It's it's. Now that I live on the road full time, it's where I spend the majority of my year when I'm in the United States um, for most of the spring and most of the fall. My first, I mean, growing up as a kid, I went to Yosemite for like, you know, one or two trips as most people usually do at some point, Um, but it wasn't really rock climbing related. The first time I went was the fall of 2015. Um... And it was actually right after my boyfriend had passed away. Um, He died in Yosemite. And I was meeting up with um, his family to kind of like do all the shitty things that you have to do after someone dies in a place like Yosemite. So collect his car and his gear and talk with the rangers. And so that was not, um, you know a good first, you know, visit back, uh, to it. It was, it was super strange too. Cause it was like, it was early November and it was really snowy and really rainy. And there were just these like moody clouds, like whipping around El Cap. And we stood out in El Cap Meadow for like an hour, just watching it. And it was just like, you know, one of those times where you're just like, nature is reflecting how I feel right now. It was, it was really, really powerful. Um, but we were only there for, I think like a day. It was really quick, but I remember that visit was super important because it kind of, uh, entrenched in me this, this need to go back and fix it, like fix my experience with Yosemite. Um, and so that's been kind of like a really long journey in, in turning Yosemite into, a place that's mine that I love and have really joyful connections to and not just that one visit where, cause it could so easily have been like, that was it. And I'll never go back there. And now Yosemite will always be a sad place for me. And now Yosemite is a very complicated place for me, but it brings me so much joy now. Um, and so that was a really, really important um, decision. That sounds like a really first intense experience to be there, but I imagine it's also, it brings you closer to Ethan to be back in Yosemite. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the first real trip I did after that experience was a year later, fall of 2016, and I had finally decided to leave Boulder and move into my Subaru at the time, and I was just like, I'm going to go on this big climbing road trip and kind of do what Ethan would have wanted to do. And finally I, I started like up in Squamish and then went down to Smith rock. It was great. You know, it was like the, the full climbing circuit. Um, and then I finally came down to Yosemite in, in, in October or September, I think of, of 2016. And I lived there for like a month and a half in camp four. Um, and you know, I didn't know anybody at the time. It was like, I was so new to the whole climbing community. Like we, I had my Boulder climbing community, you know, that I lived with out there, but I wasn't, you know, I didn't really know that many people, but it was like in that month and a half, I remember just meeting so many incredible people, but it was really hard because it was this balance. It was like teetering on the edge constantly of just being like, 
this is awful. Why am I here? Um, putting myself through like, you know, it's just like constantly looking up at like the cliff that killed him, you know? And, but then like a minute later, like biking down a beautiful path to then like lie in the meadow for an hour where the sun was just like warm and it was like joyful community. So that was a really interesting fall, but so, so necessary in changing the way that I interacted with Yosemite and finally feeling like it's not just the place that Ethan died, but it's the place where I can call, you know, I call it really, it's so cliche, but I call it home now. I mean, it's just like, it's the closest thing I've had to home in four years. Um, and it's now filled with all of my experiences and all of my friendships. Um, and I wish Ethan was a part of that, but you know, it's really nice to have been able to sort of turn that around. How did Ethan and you meet? We met in Boulder. Um, Ethan was actually also a tough, a tough grad. And the way that we met is we were in a climbing gym um, in Boulder and he was what he played ultimate frisbee also at tufts but we had just missed each other i think i joined when i was a sophomore and he was three years older than me so he had just graduated um and i knew sort of who he was through like the alumni community like i, I knew the name of of ethan um and someone had mentioned to me that there was a you know uh Tufts ultimate player that lived in Boulder. But anyways, we were just climbing in the gym. And then all of a sudden I'm with one of my best friends playing her. And I look to my left and there's this guy standing like six feet away from me, totally decked out in Tufts ultimate Frisbee, <laughs> like, like shirt and hat. And I'm, I remember just I didn't even skip a beat. I was just like, did you play ultimate at Tufts University? Obviously he did because he was playing. And I was just like, and I remember the look on his face was just like, yes, and who are you? And I was like, I played ultimate frisbee at Tufts University. And that was, I mean, that was basically it. We exchanged numbers and then we started hanging out like immediately after that. I mean, it was just one of those things that just, it just clicked. Like within like 24 hours, we were just, Yeah. Two peas in a pot. Totally, yeah. I love that experience of like you just turning over and you're like, oh my goodness, this person is just like appeared yeah. with all of my past as well. Yeah, well, and I think it was so fun too because around that time I was starting to feel a little homesick for Boston because it's kind of, you know, it's like, I didn't know tons of people when I moved, I actually didn't know anyone when I moved to Boulder, but I made some friends, some close friends quickly. Um but seeing Ethan and then all of a sudden we had this like first, you know, date, not date where we just like hung out and we just talked all about Tufts University and, and Ultimate Frisbee. But then we also could talk about things like rock climbing and Boulder and things that were new to us here. And um, and it was just so fun. You know, it was like one of those people was like, you're an absolute stranger, but we have 50 mutual friends. <laughs> That's so unusual. So many, and not even just mutual friends where they're kind of friends, but like some of these people are my closest friends and you know them well, you know, it was really, really cool. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And so when he was in Yosemite and passed, mm -hmm. were you supposed to be there with him on that rock climbing trip? No, he, um, he left for a climbing trip that was going to be like Yosemite and climb a bunch of big walls there and then go to Indian Creek and do a bunch of climbing there. And we were going to meet, this is actually interesting. He left like uh, like middle of October or something like that. And he was going to leave for a month. 
And I, at that point, had decided to quit my job at Sender. At that point, I had worked my way up to a producing role at Sender Films, and so I'd, I'd been working there for like a year and a half or so. But I knew I was like, had learned a lot, but kind of wanted to break out on my own again and do the freelancing. And so right um, like a week after he left, I had been planning to quit for a while, but I finally like put in my notice and was so excited because we were going to reunite in Indian Creek uh, for Thanksgiving and it was like three days after I quit that he died. And, you know, very quickly it just like turned my life upside down. But, um, but yeah, I remember like calling my boss and was just like, I'm not coming back to work ever again. You know, I was supposed to finish out another month. <laughs> and they were just like, yep, <laughs> totally okay. Go do what you need to do. And I was like, yep. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so that didn't end up happening. Instead, I went to his funeral on the day that we were supposed to reunite, which was a hard pill to swallow. There was a lot of hard pills to swallow, but... And there's still hard pills to swallow. I read something really beautiful you wrote on your um, blog just about how, like, grief is not linear. And I think people always are like, oh, it's going to get better. Yeah. When anyone passes of any, like, age or relational, like, whatever they are, if they're your grandparent or your partner, like, I don't... I don't think it is linear. Tell me about what your experience of that has been like. Yeah, that's been a journey to say the least. Um, yeah, grief is such an interesting learning experience for a lot of different things. But I think in a way, in the earlier stages, it feels like grief can be linear. I mean, the first year is is awful. Like there's just, you're just trying to survive. Um, but then the second year, I remember it's like, it's just, you're an, just far enough away from it that it's not, you know, you're not waking up every single morning and like remembering that they're gone and like living through your grief, like super sharply, like you wake up in the morning and you, you already know that they are gone. So it's, it's a little bit easier to live with. Um, and so it feels linear. Cause you're just like, well, slowly it's getting easier to live with the grief. It's never like you really move on from it, but it just, it just day by day, like life just becomes easier because you know how to live with it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I'm just over four years, um, since he passed away and like the hardest thing about this past year was thinking going into 2019 that, you know, I guess the way to explain it is 2018 was a really good year for me. Um, just in terms of like work and friendships and, um, just like feeling really positive again about like my future. Um, and so I was like, this is going to carry me into 2019 and 2019 just sucked (laughs) for many different reasons. But, um, there were a lot of good things that happened to me in 2019, but it was, it was just a hard year. And in some ways I thought about Ethan twice as much as I did during my third year out from it. And yeah, I don't know. That was just, um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Grief isn't linear. And I think a hard part, how to phrase this. The thing about grief is that it, 
it changes so many parts of your life. I think a lot of people think that grief is just the act of missing somebody, but it's not. Grief is like your entire life changes. And it's not just dealing with the act of missing somebody. It's dealing with suddenly a lack of a future that you had dreamed for yourself with this person. It all of a sudden starts changing your relationships with friendships. It changes your relationship with your work. It changes your relationship with like so many aspects of your life. And I think a hard part for me in this last year was you can make it seem to many people like you're doing well, you know, on the outside. Um, you can present yourself like you're a normal human being. And and to most strangers I meet, they will have no idea that, you know, I've lost my boyfriend and, and that's fine. But the hardest part is, I think, actually interacting with some of my friends who who begin to sort of be like, oh, Eliza, she's totally fine now and treat me in a way that was kind of pre-Ethan, which is great. I like being treated normally again, but there is a hard aspect to that as well, where all of a sudden um, grief will sort of like rear its ugly head and in unexpected ways, you know, people will expect more from me, um, in ways that I'm still not ready to give, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, and so that's been a bit of a learning curve in the past year. It's sort of like, how do I tell people that I'm doing okay, but like, I'm still not okay. Yes. Yeah. And like, I'm always going to miss him, you know, like that doesn't ever go away either. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I find it really interesting, but also resonates with me of how sometimes it's like with the people we're closest with that it's actually hardest with. Yeah. For them to understand that you're like, yeah, I am still suffering. Yeah. Like it's not, yeah, it's not over. Yeah. Yeah. And it's tough too, because it's like, I want to be like such a good friend to my friends too. And like, everyone's going through shit, (laughs) like regardless of what it is, like everyone's going through a shitty shitty things throughout their year all the time. And one of the things that I just get so frustrated with myself by is like, I I don't want to just be the person who is going through, like, I want to be the friend that can sit down and be like, regardless of what I'm going through, what are you going through? And tell me about your life and, and try and be like a good ear. Like I used to be, you know, to those friends, but, but it's hard sometimes when, you know, a grief, grief zaps your energy in a lot of ways. Like it, you still you still care deeply about all your friends and your family and your life, but there are many times where it's hard to find that energy to like actually be proactive about caring, if that makes sense. Yeah. Know, it's, a, it's like your capacity is maybe decreased from what you might want it to be yeah. at times. Yeah. But then also probably your level of empathy and understanding is also deepened from your experiences. I think so. Yeah. That's definitely one of my, I like to think that's one of my strengths these days, (laughs) (laughs) but I do. I mean, like, yeah, I can, I can empathize with people on, 
on a lot of levels, even if they haven't lost somebody. I mean, even a breakup is going through grief. And I have many friends that like go through breakups and they're, you know, they come to me and they apologize because they're like, I'm so sorry. This is nothing like you went through. And you're kind of like, well, that doesn't fucking matter. You're still hurting and you still lost somebody. And like, I know what that feels like probably on a greater level, but like, I know what that feels like. And I'm so sorry you have to go through that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, or even like being losing your sport from injury or illness, like that there's totally. grief there. There's grief there. I mean, like, so my brother, he's a professional athlete, but he's been sick for the last two years and he's been going through like his own grief because he can't do what he wants to do anymore. And we've actually had a couple like really, you know, interesting conversations about it's different grief, but it's still grief. You know, he's, he's suddenly dealing with the loss of like what the rest of his life, what he thought the rest of his life was going to look like. And and so I just think that's all, yeah, it's all relatable in the end. Yeah. After Ethan passed, did your relationship to rock climbing outdoors shift your own personal experience of being on the rock? Yeah, it definitely did in the beginning. Um, I hated rock climbing for a while, like a couple months. Um, but I kind of, it, what I kept coming back to was just like, I knew how much he loved it and I didn't want to hate it because he died doing, you know, it's like, I wanted to still love the things that he loved. And so I put some energy back into, back into it. And I'm glad I did, um, sort of turned it around, but yeah, I mean, yeah, for a while it was just hard to care about any, I mean, like rock climbing was like, not even like that big of a deal. It was like, I didn't even care about work anymore or like my photography. I had no idea what I wanted to do. for a while. What helped you figure out what you wanted to do or how to survive? Um, in the beginning, it was very like, I quickly realized that I needed to be incredibly selfish in, in order to get through it, which I think is a really interesting thing to talk about because I think selfishness often is perceived as a really negative aspect um, or a negative you know, way of life. But I think there are so many positive things about being selfish as long as you're not hurting other people. Um, and so I was, you know, in that space, my friends and my family were, gave me all the space that I needed to be selfish and like all the forgiveness to be selfish. You know, I was, they were sort of like, this is your time, go and do what you need to do. Um, and so I just would, uh, do what I wanted. Um, at that point I'd quit my job. Right. (laughs) Um, but what was kind of nice is that leading up to quitting my job, since I knew I was going to do it for a while, I saved a lot of money because I was like, I'm going to go into full freelance, but I want to have like a cushion. So I saved up a bunch of money, which ended up just being like my grief fund (laughs) that I just lived off of for like a year. Um, but I'm so thankful for, I don't know how, people go back to work so quickly after losing somebody. I mean, I could barely get out of bed, let alone like talk to anybody or do any type of thing in my life that felt utterly meaningless, you know? Um, And one of those biggest things for me actually was my photography. I totally wanted to ditch it. I was just like, this is the dumbest thing on earth that has no purpose. It's like, I mean, nothing had meaning, right? Um, but the thing that turned it around for me is actually a project that Ian, our friend Ian had done for the last couple of years that always inspired me was a photo a day project. And, um, and I knew that if I wanted to, to work on 
getting back on track with my photography, I was going to have to dedicate some amount of time and commitment to actually wanting to do it. Um, and so I gave myself this one small project, (laughs) very simple by nature, but actually like very difficult when said and done, which was take, take at least one photo every day for an entire year. That's the only, those are the only rules. It doesn't matter with what camera, doesn't matter what the subject matter is. It just has to be, you just have to take a photo a day. Um, so once I started doing that, um, the creative, you know, aspect of me then wanted to do a good job with it. <laughs> I was like, well, fuck, if I'm going to do a photo of the day, like I want to take good photos. I don't want it to just be another photo of my dresser. Cause I'm like still crying in my bedroom, like alone, you know, like I want to get out of the house and I want to like make a good photo just for the sake of creating a good photo. Um, and this project, I swear, saved me that year, like a hundred percent saved me. Um, it was the sole motivator for getting me out of the house and just saying yes to invitations. Um, and being in Boulder, you know, there's a lot of people that are going outside all the time. And so I'd always have friends that'd be like, Hey Liza, I don't know what you're up to, but like, if you want to come for a hike, we're going for a hike and we think you should come. And if I didn't have the photo of the day, I probably would have said no. I probably would have been like, no, I just want to lie in bed. I don't want to engage with anybody. But I'd be like, fuck, I have to take a good photo. And like, I want to take it of the mountains because like Ethan would like that. And so, yeah, I started taking a photo every single day and it just kind of got me into a habit. It kept me present. I had to like, you know, I had one commitment every single day and it was just to take a photo. And that kind of just like helped me engage with life again, engage with people and engage with things that like held some meaning to me. Yeah. It was like, it really brought you back into the tangible world Yeah, and space to have that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so then once I started doing that, um, it kind of launched me into loving photography way more than filmmaking. Cause at that point I'd been full on filmmaking and, um, but the photo of the day was just, it was fun. It was quick. I didn't have to do a lot of work. Um, but it started just like teaching me to like how to correctly take a photograph because taking a photograph and, and taking a video are very different mechanics. It's kind of the same, but it's very different too. And then the editing is very different. Um, and so that was great. So, you know, after a year of practicing around that time is when I like moved into my Subaru and started living on the road. And then at that point, my funds had also started to run out. So I was like, shit, I need to figure out how to make money. <laughs> um, and I met this really good friend in Yosemite who was also a photographer. And he was just like, why don't you just take photos and sell them? You know, just like, because I, I was going to go back to Boulder and work at like the climbing gym while I figured out what to do. And he was just like, fuck that. Like your photos are good. Just start submitting them to different brands or different people. And I was kind of like, okay. <laughs> and also if you're living on the road, like your overhead is so low, you don't need to make that much money. So that was convenient. Yeah. yeah. And so in that first year on the road, how many places do you think you slept in? Oh my how gosh. How many parking lots, trailheads? <laughs> A lot. Um, well, I converted my Subaru into like this little uh, livable barely livable space. It was mostly like a platform in the back and kind of felt like you were sleeping in a coffin. Um, but it worked, you know, it, 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 if I was living in a tent, it would just be miserable because you're just like cold or wet or sandy all the time. But at least like in a car, you can kind of like stay away from the elements. Um, so yeah, I was living in the Subaru and I was like, yeah, so I was Squamish, Oregon, Yosemite, 
um, Moab. I was in Moab a lot that spring. Um, and at that point I had been in the van for maybe like six months and I knew I wanted to, or not the van, sorry, the Subaru I was in for six months and I knew I wanted to continue living on the road. And I was like, right, if I want to do this and not hate my life and <laughs> be somewhat comfortable, like I need to upgrade. Um, and so I bought a van which seemed like a really big decision at the time and really nerve wracking, but now was like the most obvious choice and the greatest choice I could have ever made. Um, bought the van in like the spring of 2017, built it out all by myself, which is still to this day my most, uh, like proudest, most accomplished project I've ever done. Um, and then, yeah, I've been living in the van now for about three years. I feel like van life, especially on social media, has become something that people really idealize. Yeah, they do. And think is really incredible. But in fact, I don't think it's that, it's not that easy. Yeah, well, it's just one of those things that's difficult because it's like, yeah, van life is so wanderlust and amazing and you can sleep wherever you want. And wow, it's just so carefree. But like, I feel like the people that are posting that aren't people that are actually just like living in their vans literally every single day throughout the year as a means to just like do what they wanted. I mean, a lot of people are, but like the super curated Instagram van life is just people that got tricked out vans and then yeah, want to make like pretty Instagram photos. I don't know. It's, it's a very odd juxtaposition where there's like a large group of us that live in vans solely because it's convenient because all of our stuff is in there and we can move around at the drop of a hat and park wherever we want. I've got, you know, all the gear I need in my van. I have everything I need in my van and it's cheap. Like I can just, I don't have to pay rent every single month. And so therefore I don't have to work all the time and I can enjoy the places that I'm living in. Um, but like, it's also hard. Like I live in the van by myself and like, it's really lonely. <laughs> you know, it's like a lot of driving. Um, it's a lot of breakdowns. <laughs> it's like, you have to be the right type of person to live in a van. I think like an introvert does very well. <laughs> have you ever taken the Myers-Briggs? Yes, I have. What are you? I am, oh gosh, I might botch this. I am I have it on my phone, actually. I think I'm in, like, an I-F-S-P. Okay. Right? I'm introvert, sensing, perceiving, uh, feeling. No, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on. I do have it. Let me look this up. I've become just, like, really nerdy about Myers-Briggs and Enneagram. Yeah. Um, and no, my- I love personality tests. I think they're super cool. ISFP. That's what I am. ISFP. Yeah. And cool. I've, actually, I took it when I was 18 years old. Like, uh, in in high school, we had to, like, we spent, an, uh, you know, what is it, like an hour taking the full, full exam. And I got ISFP. And then I think I took it, like, five years later. And it was ISFP. So I've, I've, t- I've gotten ISFP every single time I've taken it, which... I'm kind of like, okay, I must be that. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's tried and true. You'll take it five years from now and it'll be the same. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. So tell me, take me to one story in your van where either the van broke down or something totally crazy happened. Like the things that you don't see on Instagram. Totally. Let me think. Um, there are some good stories. <laughs> well, one, it's not really like the van broke down, but, um, this one time I was, uh, in Moab 
and <clears throat> I was camping out on like some BLM road or whatever. Um, so it was kind of nice. It was like no one else was around, but I was just kind of in the middle of nowhere. And I wake up at 2 a.m. and I have severe food poisoning, like so, so sick. And it's like in those moments, all you want is like a warm bathroom, just like sleep on the tiled floor, right? Because you're like, I'm just going to sleep in the bathroom for like the rest of the night. And instead I was literally like hunched over a cactus, like throwing up for like four hours in the cold desert dirt, just miserable. And I was like, I hate living in a van. It was like one of my lowest moments. I was like, this sucks so much. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That was like not a fun night. Um, gosh, uh, well, this the van doesn't do that well in the snow, so I've actually been avoiding winters for the past three years. And I love to ski, and I love the snow, so that's been like kind of tough. Um, I literally have barely skied in the last three years because it's just like not that feasible. I mean, there are a lot of people that live in their vans and ski, but they kind of just park it and don't really like move around. I'm just kind of terrified to drive in the snow with my van. It just doesn't do well. I love how like it almost sounds like the van is a person right now. Yeah. You're like. They don't do really well in the snow. The <laughs> birdhouse. I, I call it the birdhouse. Oh, the birdhouse. <laughs> yeah. So where is your van parked right now while you're in New England? Uh, it's in Reno. Yeah, it's at my brother's house. It's convenient and just left it there for a little while. Um, but that's that's also one of the other hard things with a van is that whenever you're – I do a lot of international travel either for work or just for fun. Um and figuring out where to leave the van for long extended periods of time is really difficult. Uh, last year I was gone for three months. And luckily I found some friends in Boulder where they were kind of like, yeah, doesn't bother us one bit if you want to park it on our street. It was like a nice quiet street. And I was like, thank God. But I did get back and the battery was completely dead. So <laughs> About that. You're kind of like, oh, yes, of course. So in your travels last year, you also did a lot of running and adventuring on your own. You are an amazing endurance athlete. You ran the Mont Blanc Marathon. You ran the UTMB course. Tell me about a bit of those adventures. I mean, you capture them, but you also experience them yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would by no means call myself like a crusher, but I do love to go long. I'm very slow, but I just like love going for long distances. And it's funny because growing up, I, I hated running and I never would want, yeah, I never would dream of myself like doing anything like this nowadays. But for me, running is is so fun when there's an adventure aspect to it. Um, and so trail running, obviously, is just a no-brainer. I mean, I literally can't even run on tarmac. Like, I went for a road run, actually, with my mother a couple weeks ago for four miles. We ran four miles on pavement, and I have never been in so much pain. <laughs> I was like, this is the worst. Um so trail running for me, yeah, has definitely always been about the adventure of just like going up into the mountains and being able to access really beautiful places um, and go and just spend like a whole day doing it too. Um, but really I got into it because my sister's such a badass ultra marathon and what she's doing is absolutely insane. Um, but I love trying to keep up with her. And honestly, I just love photographing her. Like, she's really fun to shoot, too. Like, when you get up on a ridge line, you're just like, oh, this is perfect. Um, but yeah, last summer, uh, 
I had some goals of just like, well, the year before I had done like my longest run, which was like a 50K in Yosemite, which was really nice. Um, it wasn't even, it's not even like a course or anything like that, but I just connected this like beautiful loop that went from the valley floor up to Tuolumne and then like all the way back down. And it was like the most magical run ever. And then after that, I was just kind of set on like, it's a nice way to keep in shape um, for my job as well. And so I signed up for the Mont Blanc Marathon, mostly as a means where like, if I know I have a race, I'm going to train and then I'm just going to like stay in good shape. Um, but yeah, I moved out to, to Chamonix for three months to kind of live with my sister and do a bit of photography out there and ran, ran the marathon. And that felt really good. It was like the first time I was like fully healthy and just like ran it without injury and it was really pretty. Um, Did you run the actual marathon with your sister or mom or on your own? On my own. But they've both done it like multiple times. Um, and this was the second year that I had done the marathon. I think I did the marathon three, two or three years ago. Maybe the year before that. I'm not sure. But it was like hard the first year that I did it. I was really injured and shouldn't have done it. <laughs> but yeah, this year just like it was the first time where it just went well. And I was like, finally, like I built up enough of like a foundation so that running a big trail marathon in the mountains like isn't going to kill me. And actually, so then three days after that, my mom and I had planned to do the TMB, the Tour de Mont Blanc. Um, and originally I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this three days after running the Mont Blanc marathon. But marathons are just different when they're in the mountains. They're just, you recover a lot faster and the impact isn't as bad. So three days later, I was kind of like, yeah, let's just do it. Um, and we took it, you know, slow comparatively. We did it in like five and a half days. Um, and we didn't, I don't even think we like ran that much of it. We just like speed hiked, um, and just like had a nice time and it was really, really beautiful. But I did get shin splints after that. I think it was like a little too much by the end of it, but yeah, for me, honestly, trail running is just like a great means to have like a good adventure, but at the end of the day, it's just like, I need to maintain like a base level of fitness just to do my job so that when I get hired for a lot of these shoots that I go on, I'm just like at a decent fitness level where I don't even have to think about it. Um, one of those jobs was like this thing that I did in Fiji earlier this spring where I basically had to run this crazy adventure race with a bunch of different athletes through the jungle for like 10 days straight. And, and that was wild. Okay, tell me more about that. So what was this adventure? <laughs> I'm not race? sure how much I can say because I oh. signed an NDA, but I can I can sort of like give the premise because it's it's not like that's not secret. Um it's for a TV show that's gonna be on Amazon Prime TV, I think like at the end of next summer. It's called the Eco Challenge. Um and it's actually it's an adventure race series that came out like 20 years ago. Um, and then they canceled it. And now Mark Burnett and, uh, Bear Grylls are bringing it back. And, um, I didn't even realize adventure racing is a thing, but it's fascinating. There are like elite adventure racers that are sponsored and trained year round. And essentially what it is, is it's usually like these 400 mile races that are broken into all different, like man powered sections. So it's hiking, running, mountain biking, climbing, paddling, swimming, like everything you can think of over the course of like 400 miles. So this particular one was like a 10 day limit. Um, and it just, you know, kind of went through Fiji and they hired so many. I mean, there was, the crew was enormous. There were like so many of us cameramen, um, and camera women, camera women. Exactly. Well, actually there were only two of us on my team, which was 
yeah, because you're kind of, I mean, that's, that's the norm. It's like, especially on these types of like TV shoots, there's not that many camera women, especially in like the adventure sports world, especially in one of these fitness, fitnesses, adventure sport gigs where like the main reason I got hired for this was not my camera expertise. It was that like, I knew how to film, but I also could, you know, run 50 kilometers if I needed to. Um, and so yeah, I got a call from a buddy of mine. I did a project with him up in Alaska and he was just kind of like, are you free in September? You want to go to Fiji and film? And I was just like, okay. He was just like, yeah, job's yours. I was like, great. It was like, you know, one of the easiest like <laughs> signing up for a jobs, but it was far and away the hardest job I've like ever had. Um, it was super wild. It was such a cool experience. Um, but yeah, it was like every single day, different parts of the course we were dropped into and we had to follow teams for like, anywhere from like six hours to like 24 hours. And then if the teams got lost, cause a lot large portion of the race is navigating. And if the teams got lost, like sometimes you didn't know if you were going into the jungle with them for like 12 hours or like three days. So you just kind of like, were at, you know, at their mercy and you're just like, God, I hope they make it out. <laughs> Otherwise I'm going to be tired. So you, I mean, you were capturing them. So you weren't necessarily like paddling, but I imagine what you were doing was very physical because you very. were carrying heavy gear. Yeah. We had these small-ish cameras. We were filming on these little like Sonys. Um, but basically I had like this hip pack on my front that um, was fully submersible because you always had to jump into rivers and like swim across <laughs> shit. And you're like wading through the jungle like marshes. Um, so I had like that on my front. And then the backpack was like a 30 liter Solomon running vest that was packed with like my bivy kit, all my water, uh, food, first aid kit. Um, and then your like satellite beacon and your radios and everything like that to communicate with HQ. But yeah. were you always partnered with another person? Like No, I you were always on your own, but with a team, with a team of, of competitors basically. Cause it was teams of four competitors. Um, and so you, we were basically assigned to a team early on in the race. And then every single time, they were doing an on-foot section. We were with them. Wow. Would you do it again? I, yeah, I think so. It's funny, like, while we were doing it, because it's totally type two fun, while you're doing it, you're just like, this is awful. Like, I'm not sleeping. Like, you're just in so many uncomfortable environments. Just, yeah, it's it's next level. Um, but then it was like the day we wrapped, you know, our whole little crew was just like, that was awesome. Like, I hope we get asked back. Like, that was just so much fun. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, I mean, a lot of the things you do are type two fun. Yeah. I would say a fair <laughs> amount, especially when like the cameras are involved. Like it's always a pain in the butt, but yeah, it's, it's so fun. My mind keeps going to, like, were there any insects or animals you encountered no. in the jungle? Believe it or not, Fiji's a completely benign jungle. Like, there are no snakes, there are no spiders, there are no... There's, like, one semi-poisonous plant. But really, the thing that you have to look out for is just, like, bacteria in the water. So if you have, like, open wounds, which you did most of the time just from, like, bushwhacking, um, you really wanted to make sure you cleaned them and... and stuff because I mean it was raining the majority of the time and we were like wading through knee-deep mud for like 30 kilometers and then we'd be swimming through like multiple river crossings and it's just like 
<laughs> but what was so cool about being in a benign jungle is because you know nothing's going to kill you. Like, you'd suddenly come to this, like, clearing that was just this huge, like, bog marsh of just mud and, like, jungle vines and whatever. And the team and you just charge into it. Whereas, you know, anywhere else you'd be like, oh, gosh, there's definitely, like, a, an alligator or some poisonous snakes that are going to eat me alive. But, like, nothing's going to kill you. So you would just, like charge into everything like any type of like murky pond that you had to swim across you were just like yep jumping in okay (laughs) I love that I mean it's they clearly picked the perfect location yeah oh yeah it was perfect yeah it was because it was definitely challenging environment but I mean yeah you didn't really have to worry about the objective hazards (laughs) yeah So it sounds like 2019, as you said, you know, it was a hard year, but there was also some amazing adventure. Yeah. What for you in 2020, like what is your shift or intention or how do you even create your year if your work is so fluid? Yeah, that's honestly, it's a great question. It's one that I'm thinking about a lot right now as we go into 2020. Um, I think my intention is to actually... Um, have a bit more structure. Uh, fluidity has been great for the last four years because it's exactly what I needed when like the grief was hard or the photography work was engaging and last minute, like just being able to do what I needed to do when I wanted to do it was, was really, um, perfect for getting through those years for me at least. Um, and, I think the issue with 2019 is I was trying to still live in that lifestyle and suddenly realizing that it wasn't working for me as much anymore. Um, And so I think going to 2020, I'm actually looking for a little bit more of structure. Um, Right now I'm thinking about moving back to Boulder, at least for the end of the winter into spring. Maybe we'll see. I I just want to start to create more of a home base because I truly have living in the van. The biggest question you get is like, okay, well you live in the van, but like, where's your home base? Like, where do you live? And like, I don't have one. I legitimately don't have one. I have a permanent address where I get my mail, but like, I don't spend that much time there. Um, And I think what I'm really missing is a home base somewhere where in those months where I'm not really getting a ton of work um, or it's not like high climbing season, I can just come back to, and there's a strong community there. There's probably work I can do while I'm there. Um, But I think that's what's missing in my life right now is just, is just a bit more structure and yeah, more of a home than what I've had for the last couple of years. Yeah. I think that's great that you're going back to a place where you already have. It sounds like a lot of connection too. Yeah. 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 I still have so many friends in Boulder, so I think that's the place. It's actually kind of funny. I feel like once you leave Boulder, it's really easy to hate on it. (laughs) Sorry to everyone who lives in Boulder. I mean, I love Boulder. There's a reason why there are so many people that live there. Like it's a spectacular place to live. But once you leave, it's like really easy to jump on this bandwagon of like Boulder sucks. And like, it's such a bubble and it's such a weird, you know, crew of people. Like it's just like, I don't know. But so I think in the last couple of years, I've totally been on that bandwagon. People are like, are you ever going to go back to Boulder? I'm like, hell no. There's so many other cooler places. And now that I've been to all the places, I'm just kind of like, oh, shit. I think I might go back to Boulder. (laughs) (laughs) 
Are you going to continue with the photo a day? Oh, definitely. I'm four years running now. Um, yeah, once I finished that first year, I was just like, well, I can't stop. Um, so I'm going into my fifth year as of now. Um, it's still my favorite ongoing project. Um, and it's great because so Ian, my buddy, he he still keeps one as well. He's like on his seventh year, I think now. And we each, we're always like messaging each other every so often because we look at each other's photo days like every single day. It's still just like one of my favorite things to do is just like, what are they up to? What am I up to? And at this point, it's just, it's a fun way to look back at the year and just see a snapshot of a day. And just that visual confirmation that just like, I remember everything from that day, whereas I totally would have forgotten that. Yeah. It's really, it's really cool. I don't know. It just, it kind of keeps you a bit more present. I feel like you're inspiring me to start one. Yeah, they're really <laughs> Slash fun. inspiring a lot of people who are listening right they're now. They're <laughs> really fun. What I will say is it sounds simple. It's really difficult to remember because there are some days where you're not doing anything interesting. You are either super sick and you're just laid out on the couch and you're watching movies and you're not doing anything. You don't even want to touch your camera. You're not feeling creative at all. And lo and behold, 11.30 p.m. rolls around and you're like, shit, I haven't taken my photo. And you're like, well, nothing is inspiring me right now. But it's been a really cool challenge in just getting you to think creatively in really mundane circumstances um, and be like, well, okay, I have to take a photo. How can I make the refrigerator look as artistic as possible? <laughs> and like taking that photo. Um, yeah, the first three months were the hardest. Just remembering in general, like you, I had to set alarms for me, like, yeah, to just be like, have you taken your photo day yet? Have you taken your photo day yet? Because it's so easy to forget. And now four years in, it's, I don't forget at all. I mean, it's impossible for me to forget. It's so habitual, but. Yeah, I have Ian's bookmark to my computer. Yes. And so I'll look at it. I'm like, oh, where, where are Ian and Emma right now in the world? It's so, a really easy way to stalk people. So I'm going to have to bookmark <laughs> you, Liza. <laughs> it's a really, I've made it very easy for people to stalk me. Let's just yeah, put it that way. And to be inspired by you. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing this conversation. I feel like there's so much more that I still want to know, um, but I really appreciate you sharing yourself and doing what you do in the world. It's so good to talk to you. It's so fun to come here and yeah, hang out. Thank you for having me. Isn't Eliza amazing? Her honesty, vulnerability, and humility inspire me. If you haven't already, check out her Instagram, Eliza underscore Earl, to see her incredible photography work from around the world. My conversation with Eliza seriously has me considering starting a 365 photo a day blog. And I'm curious, any of you listeners have one? If so, let me know. I'd love to see them and hear about your experiences with capturing daily. If the conversation with Eliza resonated, let us know on Instagram. It's always a joy to hear from all of you and connect. If you have a friend or family member who you'd think would dig today's conversation, please do share this podcast with them. Nothing beats word of mouth. Every episode, I ask all of you to help support the podcast through leaving a review on iTunes. I ask this every time, but I also have an acknowledge that I actually read every review and take your feedback to heart. Moving forward, I'm going to be featuring a recent podcast review in the outro, and we'll be sending the reviewer a little thank you in the mail. On March 14th, 2020, 
E.M. Bolden77 wrote, Julia's podcast persona is so comforting and kind, yet she cultivates conversations that ignite real intentional changes. Her insightful conversation with Lauren Fleshman about considered eating helped me take steps I needed to take for years. Wise, kind, real. Thank you so much, E.M. Bolden77, for your kind words and review. I'm also really touched to know that the episode with Lauren Fleshman from 2016, Rue 212, was helpful for you in your journey. Please reach out to me at runningonome at gmail.com with your address so that I can send you a little thank you note with a Rue surprise. Leaving iTunes reviews are a huge help in spreading the word about the podcast, and I thank all of you for those who've left reviews over the past years. Next week is a down week for the podcast, but the following week we'll return with a conversation with ultra runner extraordinaire Courtney DeWalter. Thank you to my incredible podcast team that actually helps make this a reality. Nick Errol for podcast management, Tim Briggs for design, John Sumford for audio production, Caitlin Murray Minor Ong for illustration and my new album artwork. Thanks to this team. Thank you. Yes, you for listening. Wishing everyone health and safety during these times. Lots of love and gratitude.